The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. If you are using the copy of scripture in front of you, Unless you're in the front row, that wouldn't be true. Uh, You can find today's passage on page 821. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And once you've found that, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word, that'd be cool. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Um, Again, just for after service, just want to encourage you for all who are willing and able um, and just can make it um, if it works for you guys. We're just going to gather down front here. Uh, We're going to pray, then we're just going to go. And we've got some routes set up for us to be able to do a prayer walking. So really excited um, about this opportunity. We've been able to do this a couple of times in the past, um, coming out of the No Place Left training class. But now we're nudging it to all y'all come if you're able. And so just want to encourage you guys with that again. Um, And in light of that also, just uh, independence on prayer, I just really want to just push and encourage uh, you to consider attending the intercessory prayer ministry that we do on the first Sunday of each month. It is something that is similar to what we do during our corporate uh, family prayer time, Uh, but we really zoom in on this idea of just salvation, the Lord bringing people to uh, know him. Um, We meet in the conference room right on the other side there, and it's a come and go as you need. So maybe some of you are like, man, like 9.30, I can't do it, but like I could get there at 9.45 or 9.50. The encouragement is to to come to to join uh, the official time slot is like 9 30 to 10 but there's sometimes people will linger beyond that um, it's okay uh, if you show up like at 9 50 and maybe church begins but you're still praying it, it is all right um, we are just being needy um, recognizing our dependence on the lord in prayer and so i just highly encourage you your kiddos can come to that um, if you need to use some of the coloring stuff that's on the back and they sit in the corner uh, while you guys color, or maybe they just sit on your lap, whatever it is, we just want to encourage you to consider attending that on the first Sunday of each month, okay? So here we are, fourth week of a five-part series before we move into the Gospel of Luke, talking about what the Bible says about us, about who we are. Um, 
as everyday disciples, disciples of Jesus. And what does that look like in everyday life? Today's sermon title is going to be, I am a follower. We're going to zoom in on this follower identity. And the main idea for the sermon today, you've already heard, we were just literally praying for that during our family prayer time. The language we use at Delta to describe what a follower of Jesus is, it's this. It's someone who abides in Jesus. This is John 15 language. Someone who abides in Jesus by spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer. Again, John 15 ideas. And then this time spent in Word and prayer rolls over to walking in obedience to Jesus in everyday life. So it's that happy meshing together where what we know to be true from time spent in the word and prayer begins to just manifest itself in everyday life. So the way we think, speak, what we believe, how we emote, how we communicate, it's just all being submitted in obedience to Jesus. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 14 today and see what Jesus has to say really specifically about this idea of followership, following Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the bulk of our time this morning is simply going to be letting the very punchy words of Jesus from Luke 14 act like a scalpel, just slice us open, lay us open, challenge us. And then when we get to the very, very end, very, very quickly, just say, so in light of that, what does this whole abiding in word, prayer, obedience look like? That's the natural overflow of what it looks like to follow Jesus in these ways. So we're going to do what we normally do, pause. We're going to pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to just pray for yourself to hear. Um, And maybe the prayer prompt for you this morning is just this, like distracted in heart and mind. Is anyone here distracted in heart and mind? Like, like you hear me talking, but like your mind's already out the back door and like walking somewhere else? Yeah? It's easy to do that. And it's easy for me to do it. Like as the guy who has to preach up front on Sundays, just to have thoughts, heart, mind, to be far from anywhere near being present to hearing the Lord speak. So if that's you this morning, maybe that's just what you pray. Lord, would you help me to see Jesus freshly this morning? Would you help me to set my mind on Jesus this morning? So why don't you go ahead and do that. Take a couple of seconds, pray, ask the Lord by the power of his spirit to do this, and I'll pray, and then we will turn our attention to the text. Father, for my Jesus family, for myself, I ask that you would do this. Help us to see Jesus in the text. Lord, would you reign in our wandering hearts, our wandering minds to see Jesus. Would you give us a fresh sight of him, a fresh taste of the Lord and Savior. Would it be said today because of the Spirit's work through the preaching and proclamation of the Word that we could come to agree with the psalmist today? I tasted, I saw that the Lord Jesus was very, very good. Lord, 
Lord, grant us the ability to be attentive right now to the things of the Word of God, to maybe even actively pray as we hear the Word of God when the Word slices our hearts like a scalpel. Lord, we then run for you, run to you to find the healing and the peace and the assurance that can be found in you so that we would then begin to walk in obedience to you. Not out of drudgery, but out of sheer and pure delight in the pursuit of the Savior who has saved us. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen. What I want to do is put a question in front of you to maybe just give you another way, another like hook or handle to be able to process the kind of identity language that we've been talking about over the past couple weeks. So if you wanted to put this everyday disciple language, this identity language we've been talking about into the form of a question, I think the question you can ask yourself is this, who am I in Christ? Who am I in Christ? If I am in Christ, if I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior, the Bible would say you're in Christ. The question then becomes, well, who am I in Christ? If this is now my new identity, what are those identities according to the scriptures? Really, this question, who am I in Christ, this is what we have been answering over the past couple of weeks. Once a false worshiper now, in Christ, we say, I am a true worshiper. Once a member of Satan's family, now, in Christ, we are in the Jesus family. Once a self-servant, now, in Christ, I'm a servant of all. That's what we've been saying for the past couple of weeks. But as we turn our attention to this idea of being a follower of Jesus, we can say this, that once I was a follower of the prince of the power of the air, to use Ephesians 2 language, but now, in Christ, guess what? I am a follower of Jesus. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, if you just turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to Luke chapter 9, Jesus issues a very straightforward command to all those who are listening to him in that moment, preaching and teaching to them. And Jesus says to those who are around him, if anyone would come after me, here's what you need to know about pursuit of me, about following me. He says, it looks like this, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What Jesus is doing here in this Luke 9 verse 23 statement is he is clearly stating that there is a daily, everyday cost to following him, to pursuing him. This language of let him deny himself let him take up his cross daily, this self-denying, self-dying pursuit of Jesus isn't something that just identifies us on the day of our salvation, but it is a daily, everyday reality that, per, that pursues us and we bring with us into the 24-7 of daily life. Now, the reason why Jesus clearly states this 
let whoever comes after me self-deny, self-die, daily follow me, is because Jesus knows that there are many who say they want to follow Jesus, but they're very happy and willing to do so apart from counting that cost, the self-denying, self-dying cost. Yes, follow Jesus, whatever that means, they are using that language apart from the definition that Jesus gives. And so in love, in kindness, Jesus lets us know that when I'm talking about followership, that when I'm talking about what it means to come after me, to pursue me, if you're going to call me Lord, if you're going to call me Savior, let me give the definition you need to work with in order to understand the cost of what that means. Because Jesus knows the tendencies of our heart is to say things without maybe potentially counting the cost of what that actually means in everyday life. So in Luke 14, when you turn to verse 25, looking in your copy of Scripture, notice that Luke tells us something. He says, Jesus turns to the great crowds who accompanied him. So Jesus, if you remember, flashback to our studies in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has Jesus traveling and making his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross. We're right in the middle of this, and crowds are beginning to accompany him. Some who are interested, some who are really following, some who want to see Jesus go down. Jesus recognizes this, leverages the moment, and so he turns to the great crowds. He understands that there are many in the crowd who say they want to follow him, but they have yet to count the cost. So Jesus, with clarity, looks to them and says, if you do not hate family and self if you do not bear your own cross if you do not renounce all that you have you're only going to be maybe like a freshman squad disciple that's not what he says you'll be a mediocre disciple at best probably period that's not what he says he says you cannot be my disciple. Three different times in this section of Luke 14, Jesus sets forth the cost of being his follower. Costs that every man, costs that every woman are called to sit down and count. So, According to Jesus, we need to examine the three costs that he lays before us so that we can better understand what are the costs of being his follower. When you look at verse 26, we see cost number one, and cost number one is a radical change of allegiance. It's a radical change of allegiance. If you want to use these words synonymously, allegiance, a radical change of devotion, a radical change of loyalty, loyalty, devotion, allegiance. It's this idea of who is the one at the center of your pursuits. Jesus is going to say, it must be me if you're going to be my disciple. So some of you might 
remember this. We don't really use allegiance language a lot anymore, but some of us can still remember a day in school, or maybe you see it in other, other areas of life. What do you do? You come to attention, hand on the heart. What do you say? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and on down the line you go. And what are we doing in this moment? We, we know what it means when we say we're pledging allegiance to something. We're saying, I am making it known out loud that my devotion, my loyalty, the mindset of my mind, the mindset of my heart, it is geared towards something. It's anchored on something. I'm pursuing this thing. I'm letting others know that the loyalties of my heart lie somewhere. I'm pledging allegiance to this thing. And so when Jesus turns in verse 26, what he's doing in this verse is saying that the ultimate pledge of allegiance for the everyday disciple is to be to him. He's to be the ultimate pledge of allegiance. But notice that Jesus runs the cost of this radical allegiance through the word hate. And that's the shocking part of it. Look at verse 26 in your Bible. If anyone comes to me, in other words, if anyone's going to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is Savior, my allegiance, my loyalty, my devotion lies with him, yet does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, in saying this, it's just, we need to understand what Jesus is not saying. So in saying this, Jesus is not rewriting the fifth commandment, right? We need to understand this, the commandment to honor your father and mother. So it's not Jesus saying, yeah, I know what the Old Testament said, but I'm changing it now. You're supposed to honor and love your father and mother, but I'm now giving you permission to have vitriolic, poisonous hatred towards them. Let it rip. That's what it means to, to follow me. He's not saying that. Nor is Jesus sort of like in a moment, mind slip, contradicting himself. Like right back in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, yeah, love love your neighbor, but love your enemy. Then over here, he's like saying something completely different. And he's just speaking out of two sides of his mouth. Jesus is not doing that right now when he's using this, this language of hate. Rather, what Jesus is doing right now, speaking to that crowd of people around him, is he is demanding a radical change of allegiance. That's what he's doing. It's allegiance language, loyalty, devotion language. And this absolute allegiance to the king, notice that it comes with an eye-opening cost. Hate parents, spouse, children, siblings, and even self. If you're like, yeah, I don't know. Is this a one-off? No. Jesus in Matthew's gospel doubles down on this command in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. When Jesus speaks there in that situation, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, he says. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not, notice the similar language, take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, if you're like even only like a quarter awake right now, the words in Luke 14 should be jarring you to full alertness. 
And it's all because of that little four-letter word, H-A-T-E, hate. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here when Jesus is using this language, it's important to know how Jesus would have been taking that word and applying it in the context of his day. The way Jesus is using this word and applying it in the context of his day is not the same way in which we use this word and apply it in the context of our day. What you need to know is that in the Old Testament, the language of hate, hating someone, hating something, it does not necessarily mean to detest that person or that thing. Hatred in times in the Old Testament is used to express an absolute preference, and it does not necessarily mean to despise a thing or despise a person. So it's to say, yes, I love my spouse, I love my children, I love my family. Like, I take care of myself because I, in a proper way, love myself. Jesus is saying, when it comes to your love and your devotion and your loyalty to these things, which the Bible would teach us is good and right as image bearers of God, as pursuers of Christ, when you take those loves and you compare them to the epicenter, the absolute preference, the loyalty, devotion, allegiance center of your soul, what should be there is Christ, so much so that this love, when compared to these loves, looks like hate. So it's just this Old Testament Bible language that is just helping us understand something or someone is going to be at the epicenter of what you are giving your allegiance to, giving your loyalty to, what you're devoted to. I love donuts. I love my wife. All of you should really hope that the absolute preference of my soul is not my love for donuts driving me through my day-to-day relationship with my wife. It's not wrong to love donuts. Praise be to God. (laughs) It's not wrong to love my wife, commanded in Ephesians 5. But the Bible would slide in and say, yeah, it is appropriate, though, to say, in light of the absolute preference of your pursuit of your wife, using that love language, to say, in comparison, your love for donuts actually looks like hate. In comparison. Silly example, you guys get what Jesus is driving at. So while there is no place in Jesus' teaching for literal hatred, there is a place for Jesus to use this word to describe how our love for Jesus is to be the prioritizing factor of our lives. So much so that our earthly loves, like donuts and other things, seem like hatred compared to this love for Jesus. So again, following Jesus comes with significant cost. Jesus is challenging us here in these moments. Everyday discipleship will call you to reprioritize family. It's going to call you to 
reprioritize even self in ways that are completely contrary to the world's way of thinking. Thus, true followership according to Christ here in 14 verse 26 is nothing less than Jesus saying, followership of me looks like whole heart. It's not three-quarter heart. It's not 99% heart. It's not 1% heart. This is wholehearted pursuit. This is Jesus' first pursuit. Jesus as the center of loyalty, center of devotion, center of allegiance, absolute devotion to him above all else. This is challenging, is it not? Because every one of us say, man, like if there's three costs and we're only looking at the first one, this first cost seems to have already counted me out. This is punchy stuff. Like if you're not feeling the the sharpness of the words of Christ, I question if you're even physically awake right now. This is punchy stuff. I'm going to say this probably a couple of times throughout. What you also need to know is this. In saying these things, in Jesus laying out these costs, you just need to know this. Jesus is after pursuit. Jesus isn't after perfection. None of us are going to be perfect in these things, this side of heaven. It's just not going to happen. We will one day be glorified, praise be to God, according to Romans 8, and then we will begin to see measures of things just dying and completely gone. But until we die or Jesus comes back on the clouds, the call, the evaluating call for you and me right now, according to what Jesus is saying here, is this. Yes, maybe not perfection, but like, is there a genuine, like maybe it's like microscopic mustard seed size small, but yes, like Jesus, my, my devotion is to you. Like I genuinely want you to be Lord of my marriage, Lord of my children, Lord of my workplace, Lord of my work life, my thought life, the things that I click on, the things that I don't, the things that I read, the things that I say. Like I really want my devotion to infiltrate and inform all of these things. It might be microscopic small. But if you can say, yes, that is a desire, that is born from above in your heart, and that is a sign that you're right with the Lord, it's not going to be perfect, but the desire for progress there, that, this is what Jesus is driving at. Because Jesus, as we're going to say here in a couple of minutes, is he's trying to help those who will say, yeah, 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 Jesus, you can have all of me, but not my sex life. You can have all of me, but you won't have my thought life. Like, decidedly so. Brick wall built up. This is the Jesus zone. This is the non-Jesus zone. And the non-Jesus zone is the way I use my words at work. Jesus, you can't have it. Jesus, I know you can have two hours of my life on Sunday, and I'm going to put on a good show, but for the next six days and 22 hours, those are mine, and I'm going to live how I want to live. Thank you very much, Jesus. Jesus is challenging those who would say, I'm a follower. Jesus, this is yours. Big, giant wall that no Jesus can ever cross over into and say, Jesus, you can't have these things. Jesus is challenging us in these areas. True followership. Is nothing less than wholehearted, Jesus first, absolute devotion to him above all things. And King Jesus is the only one worthy of such devotion. He's the only one worthy. Jesus paid it all, worthy of devotion. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more worthy of devotion. Absolute, full tilt, pure devotion. But for many, 
to hear Jesus use this language, this cost of Jesus' first allegiance, it's just more than they're willing to pay. Like, it's just honest. They're just like, I, I'm unwilling to pay that cost. I'm happy to say, Jesus, have this, but I'm happy to also say, Jesus, you don't get to have my sex life, my relationship life, my thinking life, my speaking life. You just don't get to have it. Jesus, the, the cost isn't worth it. And Jesus says, okay, at least you're evaluating yourself honestly. But what you need to know is that if anyone comes to me but is unwilling to count this cost of radical Jesus-first allegiance in all things, he cannot be my disciple. You need to know that's the, the consequences of counting that cost. So for an everyday disciple, a radical change of allegiance that's cost number one. Jesus has two more. There's another cost that you and I are called to count, and that's cost number two, verse 27, and it's the cost of putting self to death. Putting self to death. To get this language out of verse 27, look in your copy of Scripture. Notice what Jesus says, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not Here's this death language. Bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So again, earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny self, self-denial, take up his cross, self-dying, daily, daily pursuit. Yesterday's self-denying, yesterday's self-dying was good for yesterday. Today's a new day. Are we self-denying self-dying today, and then we'll wake up tomorrow. Jesus, This goes with you everywhere you go, this pursuit in following me. Jesus just doubles down a couple chapters later here in our text, verse chapter 14, saying, if you do not bear your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. So it's just probably important to ask the question, what does it mean to bear your own cross and follow Jesus? If Jesus is saying, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple, we should probably step back and say, what does he mean right here then? So we can begin to evaluate, am I bearing my cross or am I not bearing my cross? So I can count the cost. I think in a simple way, there's tons more that could be said about this, but to try to put the cookies on the lowest shelf that I can right now, to bear your own cross is to consider yourself as dead. I think that's probably not the simplest way you can put it. Cross language is death kind of language. So to bear your own cross is to consider yourself as dead. Or you could say it like this, to bear your own cross, it's the joyful submission to the permanency of self-denial. It's learning this whole idea that as I am denying self, this call to follow Jesus works itself out into the permanency of things. It's the joyful submission to this idea that self-denial is a permanent thing that is being asked of me in my pursuit of Jesus. Or you could say it like this, this idea of bearing your own cross, it comes down to this idea, who is on the throne of my heart? Is it King me or is it King Jesus? A lot of us struggle with King Jesus and are happy to have King me on the throne of the heart. When King me is on the throne of the heart, it's me saying, I'm not going to deny self, I'm going to feed self. Fan self into flame. 
And I'm happy to make sure that Jesus doesn't have anything to do with my life in these particular areas. Why? Because King me is going to rule in this area of life, not King Jesus. So this idea of bearing your cross, considering yourself as dead, the joyful submission to the permanency of self-denial, this King Jesus or King me on the throne of my heart, well, we can say this, cross-bearing looks like you saying, King Jesus, thank you very much, is on the throne of my heart. Now, this cross-bearing language is admittedly a vivid picture that would have been extremely shocking in Jesus' day, but because we don't see a lot of people being crucified on the local street corners of our city, we lose the vividness of it. Common picture seen in the day of Jesus, men naked, spikes through hands, spikes through feet, dangling on a piece of wood. Common language, common sights. We don't see that anymore. But Jesus is like saying to them, do you remember that one time when you're walking down the road and you saw that little band of Roman soldiers come and knock on your neighbor's door? They kicked in the hinges, drug him out, slapped the crossbeam of the cross on his shoulders, and then forced him to walk to the hill where he was going to die. Yes, Jesus, we've seen that. That's what I'm calling you to in your pursuit of me. I mean, it would have buckled knees. Because it's crazy, punchy, sharp language. Everyone knows that when the Roman soldiers came, knocked on the door, and hauled out the neighbor, that this was a one-way ticket that they were not coming back from. This was a one-way journey that was going to end in death. Cross-bearing meant death. And Jesus says that those who want to be his disciple must count the cost of dying to self. Dying to self. Now again, not everyone is willing to count this cost, but for those who are, this means embracing the shame, embracing the suffering of being a disciple of Jesus at the expense of life and reputation. Think about Christ going to the cross. Shame, scorn, mockery, jeering. The epitome of the world's hate focused like a laser onto a person. And as we talked about today, there are people in our world, brothers and sisters in the fellow Jesus family, who know what the cost of following Jesus in this sense looks like. And Jesus is saying, you need to count this cost. Because if you follow me, it will be for some of you at the expense of your life. For many of us, it will be at the expense of reputation. Oh, Josh is the Jesus guy at work. Megan is the Jesus doctor. Break room gossip. Promotions may be limited. Neighbors who don't want anything to do with you because they're the Jesus people. That's the Jesus family. Loss of family. Some of us know the cost of pursuing Jesus because mom and dad don't want anything to do with us anymore because we follow Jesus. Some of us know the heartbreak of kids growing older and making decisions and going their own way and abandoning Christ 
and they cast scorn on you, mom and dad, because you follow Jesus. It's counting the cost, suffering, shame of being a disciple of Jesus at the expense of life and reputation. It's to gladly accept John 3.30 as your life verse. He must increase, I must decrease. It's knowing that to do so in a world that despises Jesus means I will suffer as my Savior suffered. Now, the world is filled with those willing to tell you otherwise. I could go and Google you a thousand other people who will get up and say what I just said is a load of baloney. Despite the very plain meaning of Jesus' words, the priests, the podcasters, the social media gurus out there, what they will do is they will come along and be very glad and very happy to promote a gospel a false gospel of self. And many are more than happy to do so with a little dash of Jesus sprinkled in, making it even harder to be able to discern, is this like false gospel of self kind of stuff? Because, I mean, they're using Bible verses and they're using Jesus language. But I can go to the local bookstore, to the local library, and pull out thousands of books that are false gospel of self-help with some Jesus sprinkled in that are diametrically opposed to the words that Jesus is speaking right now with very plain language in Luke 14. What you need to know is this, is that the hashtag self mentality of our culture, it is the polar opposite of dying to self. And Jesus crushes this false gospel by saying that whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In the life of an everyday disciple, there is no room for Jesus plus self. There's no room for, like, the throne of your heart is not a dual seat. It's not King me plus King Jesus ruling on the throne of my heart. There is no co-rulership. It's Jesus plus nothing. This is what Christ is calling us to. It must be Jesus alone. Now, all of this prompts just the very necessary question. Again, is Jesus worthy of this kind of devotion? Like, is he worthy of this kind of devotion? Listen, is dying to my own desires and plans in obedience to him worth it? Like, this is the invitation that Jesus is putting before us now. He's saying, you got to count this cost. you got to think this through. Is dying to your own desires, dying to your own plans in obedience to me, is, is this worth it, Jesus is saying? Is remaining sexually pure while single and married, is this thing worth it in pursuit of me? Is refusing to be mastered by any substance, is it worth it? Is cross-bearing, self-denying costs like these worth it? Is beholding Christ above all things, is it worth it? Is the subsequent ridicule of following Jesus as one who beholds him above all things, is Jesus worth it? Is the mockery of following his commands in a hostile world worth it? Is the laughter from classmates for identifying with Jesus worth it? Is the jeering scorn from co-workers for confessing Christ worth it? Are the insults from my parents, derision from my spouse, joking from my children, and sneers from my siblings worth following the Savior King in this way? You know as well as I do, some people say... Cost, not willing to pay. The fear of man 
tells me it's a cost I'm not willing to pay. But some of us do know the answer to all those questions is he is. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of blessing, honor, and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Count the cost. Jesus is worthy of counting the cost of dying to self. Now, lastly, because Jesus is a good teacher, he turns us to cost number three, renouncing everything. That's the remaining verses of our text, 28 through 33. Jesus, the good teacher, is going to give two parables, two stories to drive the point home. There's going to come a point in time when an everyday disciple will be forced to pay the cost of being a follower. Some of us may not have had to pay that, these costs before. Our allegiance to Jesus has not led us to the place where we have been on the backside of scorn, mockery, or jeering. Some of us can get up and say, uh, au contraire, Pastor John, been there. Like, I know what it's like to be labeled the Jesus guy, the Jesus girl in the workplace, and all of the mockery and the scorn from family, coworkers, neighbors that comes with it. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, you must count the cost of being a follower. If this question right here, if all else gets stripped away, if everything you hold dear in life, 401k crumbles, no longer can afford insurance, inheritance just disappears out the window, house caves in, relationships crumble, workplace deteriorates, and in the ash and in the rubble of everything that you once held dear, if the only thing left after the fog fades and the dust settles is Jesus, Jesus is calling you to answer the question, is he worth it? Is he worth it? Jesus says, before you go, yes, he is. You should hear two stories, he says. First, sit down and count the cost. So in your Bible, verses 28 through 30, 28 through 30, first parable, Jesus teaches. He's going to use a builder building a tower to teach a point. Notice in your Bible, here's what Jesus says. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? You might have a grandiose idea, but you better make sure you've got enough material, enough personnel, and enough money to get it done. He's like, it's just common sense. You're just going to sit down and see, like, I know you may want to, but can you afford the cost? So whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, Jesus continues, when he lays the foundation, discovers, oh no, I'm not able to finish. All are going to see it. They're going to begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So to summarize this parable, verses 28 through 30, Jesus, I think, is asking the question, can you afford to follow me? Jesus is asking the question, can you afford to follow me if you've heard these three costs? He's saying the cost isn't cheap. So you need to sit down and you need to calculate. Can you afford to follow me? You need to ask yourself, am I willing to pay this price? Just as the builder must question whether he is willing to afford the cost of building, so the would-be disciple must question whether they're willing to afford the cost of following. Followership isn't blind adherence. It's looking to 
squarely at the costs, recognizing Jesus wants my absolute allegiance. Jesus wants me to die to self. Jesus is calling me to renounce everything. I'm going to look squarely at the cost of following Jesus, and I'm going to do the mental math, so to speak, and say it is absolutely worth it because what I get is Jesus himself, and then he showers me with mercy and grace and blessings I don't deserve. It's worth it, and I'm going to commit myself with this knowledge. Can I afford to follow Jesus? Then Jesus rolls into the second parable. It sounds similar, but it's actually asking a different question. Verses 31 through 33, Jesus gives a second parable about a king facing an approaching invasion. So there's two people in this parable. The 10,000 king, the king with 10,000 soldiers. He's looking at the 20,000 king, a king with 20,000 soldiers. And in this parable, you're going to see here in a minute, Jesus is going to say the 10,000 king, he's minding his own business. The 20,000 king says, I'm going to come and I'm going to invade. I'm going to attack. I'm going to come to you. And Jesus says, if you are the 10,000 king, you got some questions you need to ask yourself. So parable, what king going out to encounter another king in war? will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if the 10,000 king recognizes, I cannot oppose this coming king, I cannot afford to refuse his demands, here's what I'm going to do. While this 20,000 king is a great way off, I'm going to send a delegation and I'm going to ask for terms of peace. I need to find peace with this king who's coming and making these demands. And I, I, Can I afford to oppose him? I don't know. I don't think I can. We'll make peace with him then. So in this parable, Jesus is asking this question. Can you afford to oppose me? Can you afford to oppose me? So the first question is, can you afford to follow me? Don't rush into it. But if you go, I can, and I can, and I can, follow him. Some of us might be going, I I can't afford allegiance because I want some self, because I don't want to die to self, and I'm not going to renounce everything. Then Jesus says, you need to ask yourself the question, well, can you afford to oppose me? Is there a cost to count And following Jesus, the answer is a resolute yes. A radically devoted, self-dying pursuit of Jesus is costly. But, says Jesus, there is also a cost to count in opposing me and the demands that I'm laying on your life. Just as the king with 10,000 needs to count the cost of what will happen if he opposes the king with 20,000, so any would-be disciple needs to count the cost of what will happen if they deny and oppose King Jesus. Some think they can afford this cost. Some will hear what I'm saying, and you've drawing the conclusion, I can handle the cost of not being radically devoted, and I can handle the cost of not dying to self, and I can handle the cost of not renouncing everything that Jesus is, is calling me to do. And the reason why you are drawing that conclusion is because ultimately you think the cost will be little to nothing. Yeah, there might be a little cost, but it's actually a cost I can't afford. I I can't afford to oppose him. Or it's just this, man, there is no cost whatsoever to opposing King, King Jesus. And you're selling the eternal value of your soul way short. 
But others do come to see the cost of opposition. It has eternal consequences to it. And so they come to Jesus. They bow before Him like the king of 10,000. They come before the king and say, I can't afford to pose you. I need the peace I can find in you. I need the peace I can find from you. And Jesus says, do this to me. Don't oppose. Come to me. This is Jesus, gentle and lowly. Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus, who's merciful and gracious. He's saying, count the cost. I want radically devoted, self-dying disciples to pursue me with absolute abandon. If you're like, yeah, I don't know. He's, he's wooing right now. No, come. Come. Don't oppose. Seek peace. Find peace in me. So the question to ask is this, is your refusal to surrender to King Jesus worth it? Have you counted the cost of opposing him? Jesus is God's anointed ruler, and rather than keep up a futile resistance which will one day be overthrown according to Philippians 2, everyone is called to surrender everything and submit to Jesus as Lord and as King, the Good Shepherd. The lesson is plain, Jesus says in verse 33, last verse of our section. Every disciple, everyday discipleship has a price. Any one of you who does now renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. These words condemn all half-heartedness. Jesus is not after fair-weather disciples. Remember, again, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about pursuit. Okay. Rather, he wants us to count the cost and reckon all is lost for his sake so that we can enter the exhilaration of full-blooded followership. So what does this look like practically? The answer goes back to our main idea. It begins by recognizing that a follower is someone who abides in Jesus, following him. And I think the implication is this. If I'm going to follow him with radical allegiance and I'm going to follow him in self-denying, self-dying, I'm going to follow him by renouncing all I have, how do I know what that looks like? Answer, the word of God, prayer, and then asking the Lord to help walk in obedience to what you know to be true. Lord, if radical allegiance to you is what you want, I need you to show it to me. And Jesus says... I have. And so it's us saying, I need you to help me have a desire to know what you want of me so in word and in prayer I can begin to do this. Absolutely perfect without ever failing. Stumbling in grace, Jesus lifting us. Yes, the grace we received, we start to walk in obedience. Yes, we fumble in our obedience. Oh no, what do I do now? Lean on grace. You've heard me say this before. The two-step walk of the follower of Jesus in this Christian life is the two-step walk of what? Grace, obedience. Grace, obedience. Grace, obedience. Some of us are trying to do this. We're just trying to one-leg grace the whole way through. Oh, you know, grace, grace, grace. And it's like when will your life begin to not just be a bunch of knowledge but doing what you know? Some of us are just trying to obey our way. 
obey, obey, obey. It's stiff, it's rigid, it's pure and absolute drudgery. And Jesus is like, but obedience is meant to be like exhilarating and full-bodied and joyful. <laughs> so what does it look like? It's learning that we're not called to be one-legged everyday disciples. We're to be two-step marchers. Grace and obedience. Word, prayer, obedience. And that's the full-bodied experience Jesus is calling us to. So can I just end on this question here, and I'm going to pray for us. It's just a simple question. Uh, does Jesus have all of you? Does Jesus have all of you? Do you understand what I'm asking? I'm asking you, as we go into a time of response before we come and take of the Lord's Supper, does Jesus have all of you? Are there some areas of your life where like Jesus has me, but he does not have fill in the blank? Does Jesus have all of you? Does he have your thought life, your prayer life, your devotional life, your relationship life, your married life, your parenting life, your college life, your work life, your thought life, what you see life, what you dwell on life? Does he have all of you? If there is some microscopic mustard seed measure of, I can say he does. Nowhere near perfection, but I can, I can say he does. Then my encouragement is here. In the, in the light of a heavy text, is just to spend time worshiping God where you're at when we go into a time of response. Does that make sense? You didn't get there because you're phenomenally intelligent. You got there because the God, the Spirit, dwells within you and has helped you, yeah? If you're like, yeah, I think I've got walls built up in my life where it's like, yeah, Jesus has all of me, comma, fill in the blank, but not this area. Just confess that to the Lord Jesus. He already knows. So just run to him and enjoy the blessing of our confession we prayed earlier, that if we confess, what do we find on the back end of confession? A Savior who is happy and willing to cleanse us from all of our sin. And the, So why, why would you not confess? Run to him with confession. And maybe that's how you approach this time of response. All right? So let's pray. Jesus, would you help us in these things? Jesus, some of us here in your mercy and in your kindness can genuinely say, like, I think the costs that Jesus has delineated, like, I've counted them and, like, it's worth it. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this work in us. We, we come to the place where we can say that because of your work in us. So we thank you for that. Some of us here might be struggling because the razor's edge of God's word has laid us open and it has revealed that there are categories of life where we'll say, Jesus, you have all of me except for this area. And I think the spirit is maybe nudging us then to question the word all in our confession. Lord, if that is us, would you help right now right now by your spirit to lead us to the place where we don't run from you having been exposed but we run directly into your arms and cast ourselves on you to find the help that we need in our time of need Jesus do this work however you are leading Lord would you just lead 
my fellow Jesus family members into the place where we walk in obedience as we just talked about this morning. Not because we're trying to earn anything, but because Jesus, you have done everything needed and now you call us to graciously collapse into you. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.